Well, we're almost, we're more than halfway done in our nine-part study in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And if we went the depths last week in studying the depravity of man, then we're going to the height this week in studying God's sovereign grace, unconditional election. And Frank would agree, God has given him grace to see these truths. And we would confess freely and openly that all of us, that God, God's grace is the reason for our knowledge of these wonderful truths, these wonderful doctrines. It is not because we're intelligent. It's not because we're studious. It's not because anything in us that we're able to see these things. It is all completely and solely by the wonderful mercy of God that we're able to understand these grand, lofty, biblical truths. I mean, God has indeed been good to each of us, has led us to this place of clearest vision, to the valley where we are enabled to see His greatness, His glory, and our awfulness. Therefore, as we begin our study, let us remind ourselves that God gave us these doctrines of grace that we might be gracious, that we might grow in grace, that God might produce in us grace. May our flesh not deceive us and use these truths to cause us to puff up in pride, puff up in knowledge, and cause us to have higher, loftier views of ourselves. May that never be. May we begin by remembering that these are doctrines of grace. And may we continue to descend even lower to the valley so that we might have a clearer vision of who God is and who we are. Let us individually as believers and corporately as a church be humble about matters of doctrine and theology. Be humble before God and be humble before others. give you five reasons. First reason is that all of us we're at one time Arminian in our theology. All of us were once Arminians. And Frank's testimony is perfect. That was my testimony. When I first followed Christ, I had decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It was up to my choice. I exercised my free will. I reached out to God and I believed and I was saved because I did it. And... For the first eight years of my Christian life, my eight years, first eight years of ministry, I was a devout, committed, faithful Arminian. I believed in a lot of wrong things. Uh, but it, it wasn't intentional. I don't think I was being proud about it. I just didn't know any better. I just didn't have the opportunity of... Uh, a faithful Bible teacher in my life to, to exposit the Word of God to me. I didn't have access to good books. I was brainwashed by my American education system to think the Puritans were the, you know, the, the worst evil of society. I just didn't know any better. Frank's testimony, my testimony is, is common for all Christians, even for even the godliest of Christian leaders in history past. Read to you a long outline for you, long quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
He said, well, can I remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant? Born as all of us are by nature an Arminian, I still believed the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burst into my heart as with a hot iron, and I can now recollect how I felt I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. One week night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon. It's a preacher speaking honestly, somewhat discouraged to hear. But he was not thinking about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that He was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Jonathan Edwards, his testimony is very similar. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom He would to eternal life and rejected whom He pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Following his conversation, he found his objections silenced. He came to a new conviction on the subject continues, but I have often since that first conviction found it a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright and sweet to me. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Men must be saved by sovereign mercy or not at all. So, when we read books by Arminians, and we come in contact with those who believe differently, we must remember, all of us once hated this doctrine of God's sovereignty. All of us rejected this idea of unconditional election. We're in the same lot, and it's only by God's grace that God opened our eyes for the more to see these wonderful truths in the Scriptures. Secondly, remember that God's will for us is both right doctrine and right life. It's both right doctrine and right life. 
So when Sherry was talking to Frank about doctrine and theology, and Frank had no idea of these things, I mean, let me, let me use my pastoral license here. I mean, maybe Sherry was more mature than Frank, but maybe not so. Right? Just because you know doctrine, does it make you more mature than those who don't have right doctrine? Just because you know some verses, because you've heard some sermons, read some books, know some pastors, does that immediately make you more mature, more godly, more Christ-like than those who have not? I remember early on in my Christian life, I was involved with the campus ministry with men and women who had wrong doctrine, especially in this area, doctrines of grace. But man, they woke up every morning, five in the morning, to do their devotions. Uh, they met every night for prayer meeting. They were now faithfully to evangelize the gospel. I mean, they sacrificed so much personally for the cause of Christ. I mean, they, they lived simple, humble, austere lives for the sake of the cross. Yes, they didn't, they didn't know these truths. They didn't have the the resources, the opportunity, but their hearts were tender towards the Lord. They abhorred sin and sought to, to live lives devoted to Christ. As I look back, do I look down on them because they didn't have right doctrine? No, I'm ashamed of myself because they had right life. Because they were pursuing Christ. Spurgeon also said, <clears throat> You may look down with contempt, on some who do not know so much as you, and yet they may have twice your holiness and be doing more service to God. Remember, knowing God is not a purely intellectual exercise. It involves all of our lives. The Christian life is living towards God. Yes, the doctrine is foundational, and yet life matters as well. So, I mean, don't corner me, don't, don't press me on this point, but if I had to choose right doctrine and right life, I mean, I would choose right doctrine, but barely, right? Just, just barely. If I were to pick a fellow minister, if I were to, if I could pray for Cornerstone, right doctrine or right life, I would wrestle with that prayer. Maybe I would pick right doctrine, but just barely. What would you choose? Someone, either or, someone who had all the right doctrine, but their life was a mess. Life was filled with pride. They were cold towards evangelism. They weren't praying. They were living, toying with sin. Or another person was an Arminian, a charismatic, right? Didn't understand these doctrines, and yet they loved Christ. They were passionate for, for, for Christ. They loved to evangelize. Their hearts were humble towards God in prayer. They sought to love one another. Which would you choose? Okay, I would still choose doctrine, but just barely remember that. Thirdly, remember that we are to love and fellowship with all believers. We are to love and fellowship with all Christians. Fellowship, the only requirement is, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Do you profess the name of Christ? Do you embrace the gospel of the scriptures? If you do, then I, I, I 
put forth my right hand of fellowship, and I embrace you like a brother or sister in Christ. I do not ask, what kind of Christian are you? What doctrines do you hold on to? I do not bring up doctrines of grace as a condition for fellowship, or spiritual gifts, or dispensationalism, or covenant theology. Those things do not matter to me in terms of fellowship. Now in ministry, it's different. To partner together, to work and serve together, doctrine is essential. These are non-negotiables. But for love, for fellowship, for prayer, for me to encourage you, and for me to be encouraged by you, I do not ask beyond the simple question, do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's that, Spurgeon, there's that quote by Spurgeon, You can read it this week. Fourthly, remember that Calvinism, unconditional election, is not the gospel. Yes, it is the foundation of the gospel. I believe it is the groundwork. Pastor Jason and I were just talking right before service. How important is Calvinism? How important is unconditional election? And we agreed it is the foundation of the gospel. Without it, the gospel falls apart. But it is not the gospel itself. So our message is not unconditional election. Our message is repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Our message is lifting high the cross of Christ. The saving message of the gospel. Once they are saved for the purpose of edification, for the purpose of strengthening the believer, for the purpose of highlighting who God is and comforting the believer, especially when he is in the, in, the, in the throes of darkness, battling temptation, we share freely the doctrines of grace to comfort the believer. But it is not the gospel. Finally, let's remember that this is an in-house issue. It is a family dialogue, an in-house discussion. We do not present... <clears throat> Unconditional election to non-believers. We do not talk about predestination with non-Christians. Just with fellow Christians. And we must remember that as we are dialoguing about these issues, it is a dialogue within the household of God's household. It was last night, Elizabeth and Emma were arguing, having their little drama about toys and sharing and playing together. And I was studying upstairs, and I was my heart was like, I couldn't study. Like, it's so sad to hear, like, sisters argue and fight. I had to go down and remind them, you know, through word and deed. Remind them, that was a joke, by the way, the word, the deed, right? <laughs> word and deed, that they're members of a single family. They're sisters. So they're not to argue. They're not to raise their voices. And they're not to fight. Likewise, with these doctrines. And I'm guilty of this. and I, I'm shamed by it, by my remembrance of, of, of it, of them. But to raise our voices, to get angry with fellow Christians, to uh, resort to personal attacks, to name-calling, is unwarranted and unacceptable because... We are all members of God's family. 
So no matter how deep the divide, no matter how strong the disagreement, we must always do it in the, in the spirit of love, of humility, a spirit of pursuing unity with fellow Christians. May these uh, five remembrances help each of us to stay in the valley of vision, to be humble as we peer into this incomprehensible, uh, profound area of God's of mysteries of God. These these great and lofty doctrines, especially the doctrine of unconditional election and predestination. <clears throat> well, let's get to our study, the meat of our study this morning. It is undoubtedly an important issue. Can't emphasize it enough how significant this subject is to all believers to our Christian lives, to our families, to our ministries. James White wrote in his book, The Potter's Freedom, the Christian loves God as he reveals himself. The non-Christian seeks to conform God to an image that is less threatening to him in his rebellion. This is the single issue that separates the supernatural religion of Christianity from the man-centered religion that surround us. Whether the work of salvation is perfectly accomplished by God for His own glory or is dependent upon man's cooperation and assistance is the watershed issue that separates biblical Christianity from everything else. This is the watershed issue. Where you stand determines everything else. It's not an isolated doctrine. Where you stand on this determines everything about what you believe and how you live your life and why you live your Christian life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, understood the absolute centrality of this issue, of God's freedom and man's bondage. That man is not free. God is free. That man is enslaved. And he wrote a very thick book, read years ago, The Bondage of the Will, worth your reading. And he's dialoguing with Erasmus, the guy who translated the, the Bible into Greek. I mean, the new, new, uh, brought the Bible into the Greek language so that people could study the Bible in its original languages, original language. And in this dialogue with Erasmus, this was, um, Luther's, um, uh, introductory statement. I give you hearty praise and commendation on this further account that you alone, in contrast to all others, have attacked the real thing that is the essential issue. As Luther was writing about the indulgences and the abuses of the papacy of the priests, all the Roman Catholic apologists were attacking him on these issues. Defending the papacy, defending the priests. But Luther understood all those were secondary matters. The hard issue, the core issue was this issue of God's sovereignty and the bondage of man's will. Of all his uh, opponents, only one man, Erasmus, understood this. And so Erasmus attacked Luther. Luther, why are you making a big deal about free will? 
and attack them on this issue, so Luther gives him praise. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such lies, trifles rather than issues, in respect of which almost all today have sought my blood. You and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns, and aim for the vital spot. You have seen the hinge on which all turns, and aim for the vital spot. I mean, Erasmus couldn't understand it. Luther, we all want to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, there are abuses taking place. There is corruption. There are practices that we will not condone. But Luther, I differ with you on this issue of free will. Why are you making a mountain out of a molehill? And Luther said, what do you mean? That's the hinge where the gospel turns. This is the essential issue. This is the vital part. What is this vital part? It is the truth of predestination and man's depravity. Truth about God's freedom and truth about man's will that it is bound in sin. Now I want to, I would like to this morning um, generate less heat and more light. And to do that, I think I, I might have found the key. Maybe it sounds kind of prideful. At least a key for me to understand and help me better understand the controversy, the debate. We will better understand the debate when we focus on the adjective and not the noun. In fact, in all five points of the five points of Calvinism, um, and I want to go into all of that, but like total depravity, focus on the adjective, not the noun. Everyone agrees on depravity. The issue is, is it total, is it definite, or is it indefinite? Is it partial? Limited atonement. All Christians believe in atonement. The debate is, is it limited or unlimited? All Christians believe in grace. Arminians believe that we are made in the image of God, and for it to be irresistible, it dehumanizes us. It violates our integrity. So Arminians believe it is resistible. We believe, no, it's irresistible. Right? Uh, perseverance of saints. We all believe in that we're, we're Christians are saints. Arminians believe we can lose our salvation. Christians can give up and fall astray and lose their salvation. We believe we focus on the adjective, perseverance, or more, more accurately, the preservation of the saints. That God preserves us. So in this debate, we need to focus on the adjective and not the noun. When you're debating with your own Arminian, Arminian in your heart, or when you're debating with an Arminian outside your heart, focus on the adjective because if you're a Christian, you believe in election. So if you're a Christian today, and you go, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I believe in predestination. Trust me, you believe in predestination. It's not like the term Trinity. Some, you know, like, um, you know, cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Romans, they'll say, well, Trinity, that term is not in the Bible. And we'll say, when I first heard that, I was like, no, it's in the Bible. Right? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then my friend's like, no, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> I'm like, What? But how can we use this term? It's not in the Bible. 
Well, so it's a theological term, not in the scriptures, but it actually summarizes what the Bible teaches about the triune God. So we use that term. But it's not like that term. Predestination, election, being chosen, those words are in the Bible. It's not an extra biblical term used for theological purposes. They are biblical terms. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's like third grade English grammar. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Romans 8, 29-30 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to conform, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Second Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So if you are a Christian, then you believe the Bible, and the Bible clearly teaches election. The idea of being chosen by God. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. This is the basis of our pursuit of holiness. You need to pursue holiness in your life because you are the chosen ones of God. So the disagreement is not in the election part, the noun, but the debate, disagreement is in the adjective. Did God choose us conditionally or unconditionally? Did God choose us on the condition that we would choose Him first? So in His omniscience, He looked down the corridors of human uh, uh, history and He saw ahead of time who would choose Him? Who would believe in Him? Who would seek righteousness? And based upon our first act, God responded by choosing us. Conditional election. Is that what happened? Or is it unconditional election? Did God choose us not based upon any previous condition on our part? That we were in the same cesspool of sin as rest of humanity? And we were not seeking God. We were enslaved to sin, reveling in our sinfulness. And yet, God chose us according to His own good pleasure. Is that what the Bible teaches? That is the debate. And by now, you know where I stand. I passionately, I vehemently believe in unconditional election. I mean, it is one of those things, you know. Like here I stand, I can do no other. I, I mean, God so helped me that I would never move this, from this position of 
of, of holy, with my whole heart affirming this doctrine of unconditional election, it is precious to me. Why? It is not just an intellectual stance. No, I have privatized it. It is personal. It is what I believe. My, my, my Christian life depends on it. Because you see, brothers and sisters, if Christ came, lived a perfect life, and He died on the cross for sin, and yet all the benefits of the cross was conditional, was dependent upon me, I am ruined. I am without hope. I am lost. I am still in my sins because I would never choose Christ. And if I did choose Christ, I would ruin it. I would mess it up. I would figure out a way. Right? Because I am, you know, so rotten to the core. You know, I would mess it up. You know, I mess everything up. And this is the best thing in life. I would mess it up as well because of my sins. If salvation was dependent upon me, it's not the gospel, it's not good news, it's not grace, it's not mercy, it's the same old bad news. It's up to me again. And I know, if I know anything, I know myself. And that's what Spurgeon said. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chose me, I would never choose Him. I am sure He chose me before I was born or else He would never have chosen me afterwards. Right? After I was born, He would not have chosen me. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself <clears throat> why He should have looked upon me with special love. I agree with Charles. I agree with him. I would mess everything up. If I know anything... Anything at all I know about my corruption, my depravity, my sinfulness. And that's what I posted this, this week at our, the pastor's corner at our church website about Ted Haggard's uh, fall from grace, fall from the pastorate. You know, that, the video of him being interviewed by a news reporter was taken offline, but I caught it before it was removed. And it was just, he's in his truck, and this news reporter caught him leaving or entering his house in his truck and interviewing him about all these accusations. And they zoom in close to his eyes and you can see his eyes. And he's caught. And he's talking about immorality. He's talking about the drugs. And he's finding a way out, but his conscience is right there with him. So he's admitting to some things and denying others. And the camera zooms back. And guess who's sitting next to him? His wife. The camera zooms back further and there are three of his five children are sitting in the back seat. My heart is dropped watching that. And uh, Tim Chalice, I mean, said it better than I can. He said, there are some who are seeking to make this issue into something almost prophetic as if it is an indicative of the state of Christianity or some have said, I'm sick and tired of being associated with a Christianity that does not seem to care one writ about holiness or obedience to God's Word. Stuff like this can only happen because Christianity today is rotten to the core. Mr. Tim Chalice's response is, no, no, no. 
Stuff like this happens because we are rotten to the core. Stuff like this happens because I am rotten to the core. Oh, that we would all take heed. How can we be sick and tired of being associated with other sinners? I am the greatest sinner I know and can only delight to be in the presence of other sinners, others with whom I can share God's grace and from whom I can learn more about God's grace. The Christian I am most sick and tired of being associated with me is me. For my sin is before me always. Every day I have to peer into my dark heart and beg God for forgiveness. Every day I see again how my heart is dark and black and awful and filled with enmity towards God. Every day I see in my heart that I am no different than Ted Haggard. But for the grace of God, I would do so much more and so much worse. Take heed. I sit here and weep for Haggard and his family and his church, but selfishly I weep even more for myself, knowing that I too could be in such a situation. What is in Haggard is in me. What is in me is in you. But for the grace of God. This is why unconditional election, doctrines of grace, is so precious to all Christians who love the scriptures, understand the depravity of man and the grace of God. That's why it's so important for me to warn for this. I am without hope. May you look at your own heart and may you say in your hearts, Amen. What is in Ted Haggard is in me and I, I would ruin it. If salvation was up to me, I would be there sitting in front of my family and I would shipwreck everything if salvation was dependent upon me. I believe these doctrines of grace, they're not peripheral, secondary doctrines but they are foundational to the Christian faith. Let's go to the biblical support for unconditional election. Some verses highlighting, again, election. John 5.21 The Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom He will. It's not up to man. It's not up to us. It's not our will. That's not the critical issue. The critical issue is whom God wills. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is an impossibility for us to go to Christ without the Father's will. And anyone who becomes a believer is because God chose him or her first. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. It's not, you know, a hundred were appointed to eternal life, but only 50 believed. You know, a hundred were appointed, but it's a bad day. Only 20 believed. hundred were appointed and hundred believed. God shall lose, Christ shall lose none of them that the Father has given Him. Romans 9, 10 through 18. 
Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His cause, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved before, but Esau I hated. They weren't even born. They hadn't done anything righteous or unrighteous. They were both born in sin, equally. And yet, so that God's election and call might stand. God said, before they were born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will give and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God doesn't owe anyone anything, least of all salvation. God is not ob- obligated to save us. God is not love hungry. Or we, ha- we haven't done anything for God that we should be, He should be indebted to us. It is His salvation. He will do with it what He desires. Simple illustration is, Alright, there's Scott, Steve, and um, Julie. I give um, Julie and Scott a dollar each, and Steve, I don't give him any money. And Steve says, that's not fair, where's my dollar? I say, Steve, it's my money. Right? It's my decision. Don't I have right over my own money? If I want to give it to Scott, I'll give it to Scott. If I want to give it to your sister, but I'm not obligated in any way to give you my dollar. Likewise with God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, verse 16, it does not, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Titus 3.5 It's so clear. It's so clear that it's an unconditional. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, there was no reason for God to have mercy upon us. We ask God for mercy, but there was no warrant for mercy. If there was warrant for mercy, there was, it's not mercy. It's not grace. Mercy and grace, by definition, is undeserved. You don't deserve this, but I'll be merciful. You don't deserve this, but I'll give you grace. If we had done even a single righteous deed, we earn salvation, so it's no longer mercy. But Paul says no. Second Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Edmund Palmer said amazing as it may seem divine election is always an unconditional election. God never bases His choice on what man thinks, says, does or is. We do not know what God bases His choice on, but it is not on anything that is in man. He does not see something good in a particular man. Something that He does 
that makes God decide to choose him? Well, there are several objections to unconditional election. The first is that unconditional election contradicts the teachings of the Bible. And many dear brothers, sisters in Christ, um, bring up these verses as uh, clear proof that unconditional election is not biblical. In fact, it is conditional election. They go to Romans 8, 29 and 30. This chain link of salvation. Of salvation, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. See, right, it's right there. God foreknew. God foreknew who would believe in Him and those He predestined and those He justified, called, justified, and glorified. Now, um, there's, there, there's several ways to respond to this. First of all, you want to say, well, if you're an Arminian, this verse contradicts what you believe in the preservation of the saints. Because it says here, then all those who are foreknown, or predestined, called, justified, are glorified. That God loses none of them. So, uh, to be fair, you know, even what you propose is inconsistent with what you uh, claim to hold. Second, um, the foreknowledge here is not just general informational knowledge, but a personal knowledge, a personal knowing. We don't have time for the word study. It's not even pivotal to my argument, but just to throw it out there for your own study. That if you do a word study of foreknowledge, of knowing, like, like um, you know, Joseph didn't know Mary. What do you mean he didn't know Mary? He was going to marry her. How did he not know Mary? Well, it's not, not, not of knowing she existed. It's the intimate, relational, physical knowledge he didn't know. Right? And that's what... Uh, that's, that, that's the idea here. Likewise, it's talking about personal, intimate knowledge. God knows everyone. But there's some He knew relationally, personally, approvingly. And this passage does not state either way whether this foreknowledge is conditional or unconditional. That's eisegesis. That's reading into this text. Those whom He foreknew, there's nothing those whom He foreknew that they would trust in Christ, they would be righteous, that they would have faith. Those statements are now found in, in, these, in these verses. That's interpreting the white parts. He does not say whether it's unconditional or conditional, but that is not part of Paul's argument at all. All Paul says is, yes, God foreknew, and those He foreknew, He predestined. Now, what is the basis of this foreknowledge? We will go to Titus 3.5. 2 Timothy 1.9. We don't know what the basis of this foreknowledge is of a certain group of people. God knows everyone, but He chose to know a certain small subset of that, of humanity. And what's the basis of that foreknowledge? We don't know, but we know it's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of our goodness. And Ephesians 1 tells us, it's according to His good pleasure. It's according to His glory. 
according to that for the praise of His glorious grace. It's for His own reasons, but it's not because of us. So to use verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8 as an argument for conditional election is eisegesis. You would just ask him, well, where do you see that here? You're interpreting the white spaces, not the black parts, not the letters, not the words, not the phrases, the sentence here. Right? The second verse that they would bring up is Matthew 23:37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you would not. ESV. I think other versions have you were unwilling. See right there. Christ was willing to save Israel, but they weren't saved because they were unwilling. Well, remember our study in hermeneutics? The first rule of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. What is Matthew 23 about? It's that chapter on rebuking the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. He calls them... All the names in the book, hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you stiff necked, right? Hypocrites. Um, and he rebukes them for all of their pride and their hypocrisy. Jerusalem, he's talking about the city and the religious leaders of the city. The context of chapter 23, he's talking to the religious leaders. I have wanted to gather your children, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, people of Israel. I wanted to gather them to myself. But you were not willing. You is not the people of Jerusalem. It was not the Israelites. They were willing to come to Him. They were coming to Christ. But what were the religious leaders doing? They were saying, if anyone follows Christ, believes Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, he or she will be unsynagogued. Remember John John chapter 9? The blind man and his parents, his parents would not confess it because they had put down an edict. Anyone who professes Jesus as a Christ would be unsynagogued and because of fear of the Pharisees, they would not go to Christ. And that's what our Lord was saying. You are not willing to let people of God come to me and therefore Christ weeps for them. Just like Pharaoh and Israel. Pharaoh would not allow Israel to leave the land was until last sacrifice. Sacrifice of the firstborn, the Passover lamb, the Pharaoh relent. Likewise, the religious leaders of Israel would not let God's people go to Christ. They tried, did everything possible to hold them back. But until after the cross, where believers were emboldened, and they no longer feared what man could do to them and to publicly profess the name of Christ. That is what Christ is saying in Matthew 23, 37. <clears throat> Two more verses are often thrown out at, at, at us. First Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I have no problem with those verses. 
Yes, God desires all men to be saved. Jesus desires all men to be saved. They have a problem with God having unfulfilled desires. I have no problem with that. That's the heart of God. God loves the whole world. God desires to save everyone. But He doesn't save everyone. We see that on Gethsemane. I mean, been around Cornerstone enough. You heard me say this again and again and again. Christ desired not to go to the cross. But not my will, your will be done. He submitted himself to the Father's will. And it was Father's will that he would go to the cross and drink the cup of God's wrath and be separated from him, be forsaken by God. So here is Christ having this desire unfulfilled, showing his love for the Father but also showing his higher love for the Father, the highest love, by submitting himself to the Father's will. Likewise, First Timothy and Second Peter. So this is really verses for those who question whether you're elect or not. If you're sitting here this morning saying, am I elect? Am I a Christian? Am I saved? Well, you know for a certain God wants to be saved. God wants to adopt you. God wants you to be part of His family. There is nothing in the heart of God that wants to push you out. But His desire is clear. He wants to save you. And that is consistent with God's sovereignty and God's unconditional election. That is, decrees will stand. Second objection to unconditional election is that it is dehumanizing. Arminians often say that they cannot believe in a God that violates the freedom of man to save that person. Speaking at UCLA AACF a few years ago, and this guy came up to me, and he was somewhat, you know, perturbed and upset and angry, and he was saying, Pastor James, I, I don't agree with you. You're making us, God, you're making us like robots. If we don't have free will, and God elects, God chooses, God determines, then we are like robots. I was like, oh, you know, once in a while, very rarely, but God like helps you to think. (laughs) You have a moment of clarity, and sometimes you have nothing to say in response to when people ask questions, by God's grace. I I just responded, Right, right away. No, brother, you're mistaken. We are already robots. We were robots already. Don't you understand? God humanized us. God restored the image that we were created. We were created in His image. We were restored by the cross. We were robots. We were enslaved to sin. Right? We were bound in sin. Slave, sin was a cruel slave master calling us to do whatever He wanted. It wanted. But by the cross, He saved us, and now we are free. It is not that we were free and the God enslaves us to salvation. No, it is exactly the opposite. Don't you realize we were already slaves? We were already slaves to sin. John 8.34 Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Romans 7.14, we know the law is spiritual, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Titus 3.3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Second Peter 2.19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We were set free by Christ. Unconditional election is by God. It's God's decree of saving those who are held captive to sin. Right. To give drugs to a drug addict and saying, you have choice. You have freedom to do drugs. That's not freedom. He's addicted. He's an addict. He will destroy his life, his family. He will shipwreck everything that he has for, for this, this temporary high, that's not freedom. To tell that addict, you are liberated from this addiction. You are set free by Christ. That is freedom. That is restoring right, to us what God had intended for us from the beginning. True freedom is to follow Christ. Third, is this a third or fourth Third uh, objection, it's unfair. Right? You know, we live in America, democracy is all about freedom. Right? William Wallace died for freedom. Right? Last thing he cried out, freedom. And all Americans are like, yes. That's the highest virtue in the world. Freedom. Without freedom, you have nothing. I'd rather die standing up than I live as a slave on my knees. Right? And then what, you know, our, Whoever somebody said that, I don't know. Right? Right? So it's unfair. I don't have a choice. It's all up to God. Or oh, Ezekiel 18.29. God says, The way of the Lord is not just. Oh, house of Israel. Are my, you're saying my ways are not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Wait a minute. You're saying I'm unfair? You, 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 you dare say that I'm unfair. No, no, no. It's not, I'm not unfair. Look at yourself. Take a look in the mirror. You are unfair. You are unjust. You are a sinner. You are corrupt. You are depraved. I mean, you, you don't have the moral authority, the moral platform to question God. Who are you, O oh man? To talk about justice. It's like a, a, a rapist or a pedophile in prison talking about justice and truth and righteousness. It's not a mass murderer talking about the value of human life. I mean, it's, it's absurd for, for man to talk about justice. And God answers that question. Romans nine fourteen. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he puts man in its place. I will have mercy on him, I have mercy. I will have compassion on him, I have compassion. He says, another part in chapter, chapter 9, you are the potter. You are the clay, I am the potter. What is the potter? What is the clay? What right does the clay have to say to the potter? Why did you make me like this? 
does not the potter have the freedom to bring that clay and mold it according to his will? That's God's sovereign right. And you dare question me about justice? About what is fair? You want fair? You want justice? Everybody goes to hell. Everybody goes to the deepest, darkest part of hell because that is fair. Because I have declared the soul that sins shall die. And because you have sinned against God who was thrice holy and eternal, therefore, the depths of hell you will go. You want justice? Everybody goes to hell. By saving some, I am showing my mercy and compassion. I am revealing the depths of my grace. But don't call me unjust because I show my grace, because I am merciful. Final objection is the issue of free will. Free will. Ah. Definition is free will is the ability to make choices without any prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition. I might grant to you, you might have some freedom in natural ability. Some freedom. You have the freedom to you know, go to sleep right now or not. Right? You have freedom to uh, you know, you know, stand up or not. You have the freedom to whatever. But even that freedom is limited, right? I mean, all of us would love the freedom to grow extra few inches, right? All of us would love the freedom to shed pounds, you know, in an instant. We don't have that freedom. You tried it, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> but we have limited freedom. In moral ability, we have no freedom. Our will is not free in terms of morals, in terms of righteousness in terms of holiness. Our will is completely enslaved to sin and we are joyfully enslaved. You know, I'm going to borrow this from Joshua. He preached last week at Pillars and read this illustration online. But you know, I saw the movie too so I can use it as well. Um, Lord of the Rings. I think you guys heard of it. Um, and that guy Schmeagol, right? Gollum. At the end, Frodo goes to Mount what is it, you guys, right? Mount Doom. And uh, he's to throw this ring into the molten lava and destroy its power. But even that, you know, nice guy Frodo, uh, he's not free from his own corruption. So at the last moment, he puts the ring, <laughs> you got a wedding ring, <laughs> puts the ring back on his finger and he can't let go of it. Gollum, the struggle ensues bites the finger off and he finally has the ring and he slips and he's falling into certain death to molten lava. But what does he say as he's falling to his death? He says, my precious. The expression on his face is sheer joy, sheer happiness. That is the picture of man and sin apart from Christ. It's not that we're enslaved to sin. We love sin. We were rejoicing in it. We were addicted. And even as we were going to death, going to certain hell, we were doing it with joy. We were saying, my precious, because our will wasn't free. It was enslaved from within. It wasn't physical shackles. It was shackles of the heart. Our hearts were bent. Our hearts were corrupt. Our hearts reveled 
and relished evil and depravity and sin. And we loved it more than God. We loved it more than Christ. So if anything, there was no free will in man. We're completely, joyfully enslaved to sin. And that's what God has rescued us from. He did not provide salvation. He saved us. He delivered us. Well, some final exhortations in light of unconditional election. Exhortations in light of unconditional... Let us continue to magnify unconditional election. I, you know, the songs that we sang today. Let's sing this, these truths. Let's dialogue with one another about these truths. Let's pray these truths. Let's read more books on the, this, this truth. Let's meditate on scripture that expounds this truth because it magnifies the character of God. It magnifies God's favorite attribute, God's sovereignty. It teaches us and reminds us that God is completely sovereign over our salvation, my salvation, over salvation of all Christians throughout the world. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. It teaches us that we are not in control, that our salvation is secure in the hands of God and according to His sovereign decrees. This Let us continue to magnify this doctrine because it magnifies the greatness of God's grace. If we were worthy of being redeemed, then it minimizes God's grace. But if it is as it actually is, nothing redeemable in us, nothing worthy, nothing righteous, that we didn't do anything to add to our salvation, there was no synergism, there was no cooperation with God's grace, He did it all, that it magnifies, it highlights, it lifts high the grace of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on Him and receive eternal life. Thirdly, let us magnify unconditional election because it helps to destroy pride. It removes boasting. It removes the, the little pulp that's in our hearts, where we boast of our own selves. First Corinthians one twenty six to twenty nine. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. So that boasting might be excluded. Romans 3, 21-27 Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
then what becomes of, of our boasting? Verse 27. If God did it all, if God did it all by grace, where is the boasting? Paul says it is excluded. It is removed. It is set apart. There is no boasting. An unconditional election promotes that. This helps us to be humble towards fellow believers. Everything we are is because of God's sovereign grace. God has freely given it to us. If I am a little more mature than you, it's because of God's grace. If I'm, if I know the little Bible a little more, if I'm anything, if I'm a little stronger than you, if you're a little smarter than me, right? If anything in life, right? It's God's grace, God's sovereignty. Boasting is completely excluded. Allows us to have humility towards one another. It helps us to have humility towards unbelievers. As we look at unbelievers, unconditional election tells us I was worse than him. I was the same as her. The only reason I'm a Christian is because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. As you maybe relate to our parents who are non-believers, and pride in our hearts causes us to think that we're better people, we're higher morals, and we speak to them disrespectfully, unconditional election puts a stop to it, causes us to be humble before members of our family, causes us to be humble to our friends, to our co-workers, because we know it is not because I am a better person. It's not because I had wisdom to choose Christ. The only reason is because of God's grace. And it promotes us to have genuine humility before the world. Next, let us magnify this doctrine of unconditional election because it helps us to understand ministry. You go knocking on doors and people reject the gospel again and again and again. You share the gospel with your co-worker and friend. They reject you again and again. You understand it. It's total depravity. Right? Man's sinfulness. And you do ministry. You evangelize. People come to Christ. And the church grows. And we have a right perspective. It's not because of man. It's not because we have a right program or method. It's not because we figured out the cultural felt needs of our community, we're growing purely because of God's sovereign grace, because of God, because of His work. Let us magnify this doctrine because it enables us to evangelize rightly, to minister biblically. Well, we don't resort to pragmatism, to look for things that work. Where we try to persuade people with our arguments or or our evidences, or worldly philosophies, where we try to argue someone into the kingdom of God. No. Unconditional election allows us, because we know that the gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe, that our job is just to faithfully proclaim the gospel, faithfully teach the word of God, faithfully share and model biblical truth. And God will use that to save sinners. What an exhortation to parents, to your children. If you think, you know, some have said this, that God only gives 
um, to elect parents, elect children. Uh, what? Where is that in the Bible? Because definitely some of us don't have elect parents. Maybe they die without faith. You're a Christian. And I know many Christians, devout, earnest, God-fearing Christians have children who do not walk with the Lord. So to presume just because you're a Christian and God so loves you, He will automatically pass that down to your children. Not found in Scripture. God's call to you is not to be pragmatic, not to be manipulative, not to use cultural means, not to force them, but to faithfully teach the gospel, faithfully pray for your children, and to model Christ-likeness. Because we know God uses these things. These are means of saving the lost. <clears throat> and finally, let us magnify this doctrine because it will give us courage to cross the street and to cross borders for the gospel. And Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. We're not doing ministry we're not doing evangelism. We're not church planting across the street in Malaysia and, and Czech Republic in the hopes that people might get saved. The Bible tells us that the elect are scattered throughout the world in every tribe, language, and nation. God has a remnant of believers who will be saved with the gospel. That is biblical truth. Therefore, we endeavor to plant churches locally and overseas. Because of unconditional election, let us keep magnifying this truth so that it would give us boldness, it would inspire us, it would grant us courage to go and cross streets and cross borders for the cause of Christ. Lord, what precious truths you are. Your sovereignty, your might, your majesty, your glory. Lord, no man can hold back your hand and call you to account. Lord, you're not intimidated by man. We're not on equal footing. Lord, you are God. You are sovereign. You are the one in authority. And we are but dust. We are less than dust. Because once we were just rebels, full of sin, hypocrisy, wholly set against you. And in our pride we thought you were just like us. But how wrong we were and how wrong we are. God, we... Move our shoes. We bow before you. And we completely humble ourselves before your sovereign throne. And we declare that you are the source of all of it all. You are the author and finisher of our faith. That you are the God who is glorified for the salvation of your elect. And as your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your word will not return to you void or empty, 
but will turn to you having accomplished its set purpose and no man, no group, no nation can thwart your will. Your will will be perfectly accomplished and Lord, we will just stand around your throne and just utter praise and worship of you and of your power. Lord, we ask, oh God, that this precious truth would be ingrained in our minds and our hearts and it will affect every thought, every fiber of our being, every attitude. We will not adjust doctrine to fit our lives. We will, we will adjust our lives. We will repent of our lives. So our lives and everything we think, do or say, will be consistent with your sovereign grace. Lord, your mercies indeed. The theme of our song this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.